Thank you so much for joining us in another week of Surviving Creativity, the show all about following your dreams, becoming your own boss, and surviving the process. I'm your co-host, Corey Cassoni, and I'm joined every week by creators Brad Geiger and Scott Kurtz, and this week we've got very special guest Anthony Johnston with us. He's a prolific writer who's lent his pen to many a projects, in addition to creating a lot of his own works. If you're a gamer, chances are you've experienced some of his work and not even known it. He's got writing credits on the Dead Space series, Shadows of Mordor, Zombie U, the list goes on and on. Not to mention all of his comics work on properties like Daredevil or his creator-owned Wasteland or Fuse. Great conversation this week. We talk a good deal about what fans don't know about the creative side of what we do. And we talk about what we wish fans knew about the creative process and the things they love. We talk about writers in the industry, being part of a creative team. We touch a little bit on the ownership and trademark issues that are happening right now with DC Entertainment. It's a great one. We know you're going to have a good time. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another week of Surviving Creativity. Hey, (laughs) calling us from England. No, Um, yeah, from England. Yeah, he's in the he's in the Great Britons. (laughs) Those, (laughs) right? Isn't that where you're at right now, Anthony? The Great Britons, yeah, the otherwise known as the British Isle. Yes, Uh, I am. I'm in uh, Northwest England. Yeah. Well, we're excited to have you. What? It's it's afternoon there, right? Uh, late afternoon. Yeah, it's just on four o'clock. Scott, just pretend like you're in England right now. You'll be awake. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to hang up and go. Wow. <laughs> Starting as we mean to go on, yeah. Corey Starting is, very, Corey is being super passive-aggressive with me because he's not happy with my output lately. Oh, I'm, I'm not being just... a lot of passive in this aggressive. Yeah, I'm not being be passive at all. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> No, we're going to start right there. That's how we do it. Because I made life choices that allow me to sleep in. (laughs) You don't have four-year-olds getting you up at 5.30 every morning? Um, Anthony Johnston joining us. Uh, I I think you're a famed writer. I think it's okay to say famed writer. I think that's safe. Penman? What what is your preferred terminology for your craft, sir? Penman. Wordsmith. Wordsmith. <laughs> oh God, no! It actually depends who I'm talking to. Uh, within comics uh, and games, I just tell people I'm a writer. To people who don't work in the fields, I call myself an author because people understand different things by you know different words. But wow, to your that's audience, a, yeah. You know, that's an interesting. Uh, that's an interesting. No, why? Why uh, author to those outside of entertainment? Because if I, well, not just outside of entertainment, but specifically those areas, because when you say writer to people who don't understand how comics or video games get made, a lot of the time they assume that you're just putting, you know, in the case of comics, oh, do you write the words in the little boxes? Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah. 
you know, or in games uh, they assume that you're just writing the line saying, I'm out of ammo, and things like that. <laughs> Whereas when you say author, you there's an assumption that that means that, oh, you write the story, you, you create and come up with stories. Well, no, but, within well, the industries, everybody knows the difference, so it's not so important. But, but yeah, let's, but let's be honest. Industry. I mean, you do actually, though, write the lines that say, I'm out of ammo. Oh, I sure, mean... I do write those <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. But I also come up with stories and plots and what have you. So it's just, it's just easier. Otherwise, if I say writer, I inevitably get a barrage of questions back and have to correct people about what a writer does in games or comics. So it's just easier. You know, I, I recently started changing what I what I say I do when people ask me as well, but for a totally different reason. Uh, you're embarrassed. I, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love what I do, but I get it's I get this glazed expression, or I used to. Mm-hmm. So it would be like, you know, someone would I, I'm just meeting typically outside the industry would say, so you know, so what do you do? And I go, oh, I do business administration and and producing and production, and uh, it's like immediately you just see. The eyes glass over because either right. they don't get it or they don't know. So now, uh, and I started this just a week ago. Somebody's like, "Hey, so what do you do?" And I paused and I went, "You know the the cat videos you see online?" <laughs> he goes, "Yeah." So I basically make those just a little different, but you know, it's just that that stuff, that online stuff. What? And Why would you tell them that? They're so receptive. It's insanity because they immediately go like, like the cat videos, and I go, well, I don't, I don't make the cat videos. I make no. other stuff. So I make, you know, I, 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 uh, I run a business that makes comics and online animation and this and that. And they're all of a sudden they're more interested, more receptive, and then they want to go to the websites. They want to check it out. But I have yeah, to because they're looking for cat videos. Yeah, under false <laughs> pretenses. Yeah. How disappointed no, I, are they when there's no yarn? <laughs> I, <laughs> I explain what I'm what I do before they go, but but like if I say, you know, I, I <laughs> you know what, Corey, you got you got this figured out. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to start telling people I'm a stripper. <laughs> And then when they go to my site, I'm going to explain to them on the way over that I actually do a comic about oh, super. Not, not those kind of strips. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't even realize I had done that. So you know Corey? Yeah, I'm his boss. <gasps> so you make the cat videos? No, I'm the cat. <laughs> yeah, the next video you make has got to be Scott playing with a ball of yarn. Oh, it has to be. This is fantastic. That's a random motion. <laughs> if you can get me up in time to make it. <laughs> uh, fuck you. <laughs> What? Oh, oh. <laughs> Anthony, you and I might just want to lay back for a little bit. These guys have got a little something to work out, I think. <laughs> we should talk uh, to our we should talk to our guest, our poor Anthony. <laughs> uh, so uh, we we're excited to have you because. Um, you know, not not only because you write a lot of comics that we like, but also because you have done a lot of work um, writing video games. And we were excited to have somebody from the video game industry to talk to us because a lot of our um, listeners have said, like, oh, it would be cool if you got, you know, uh, somebody from here or somebody from there. And video games is one that always pops up. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've worked in video games a little bit, and we know uh, the process, especially at the big AAA publishers. But it would be cool to hear from you as a writer um, well, how these things often go down. Uh, I feel like when I was working at Namco, I've, I felt like the fans were completely out of touch with the with the company that was making the game, and I and I felt like there was no way to overcome it. Like there was no way to explain to them like I, I know you're mad at this but you don't understand why it's happening this way mm, yeah you, you yeah, know what I, I mean I know exactly what you mean and I agree I think part of the problem is because video games and this is a cliche it's been said many times but video games is a still a very young medium yeah and I think part of the problem is that unlike say movie making or TV which is younger than movies but you know obviously shares a lot of the same sort of creative process, there is very little information about how games get made. Um, If you want to know how movies get made, there is, you know, there are mountains of behind-the-scenes documentaries and DVDs and books and all manner of online articles, all manner of stuff that you can uh, research to find out how movies get made. And even if you're not a big movie buff there's so much of this stuff and it gets shown and displayed so often that you kind of absorb it everybody understands the idea that there's a director standing behind the camera shouting action you know even cliches like that everybody knows them whereas with games we haven't yet permeated people's perception of how they get made in that same way and I think that's just a question of time I think when you get things like the double fine behind the scenes stuff that they did for um for their Kickstarter, oh, for, yeah. Yeah, for the Kickstarter, for Broken Age. Broken um, Age, yeah. Or the the Penny Arcade show, you know, so the behind-the-scenes stuff on that. I know that's not games, but it's that, that sort of... There's so little of these niche creative industries like ours um, out there about how they get made that showing that process over time, you know, people will come to realize what goes on. Um, and I think at the moment there just isn't that and so it's understandable, it is unfortunate it's annoying and frustrating at times but it's understandable that fans make assumptions and leap to conclusions about how games are made and who makes what decisions and why decisions are made that are completely wrong Mm -hmm. utterly and completely wrong but you can't you can't explain to them why you. it's uh, and not because they don't want to hear but because there are so many of them you know, what can you right, do? Right, right. <laughs> you just well, can't get to everyone. Well, and sometimes, you, sometimes uh, the, the thing that I found that was most frustrating to me was when a fan was right, but you can't say it. You know, like, <laughs> like <laughs> some exec would come down the ladder and change something you're, you're doing on a game that's been in production for, you know, two years or whatever that completely changes the entire game. And a bunch of fans are mad about it. And, and they're saying, you know, some d-bag made some decision that's ruining everything ah. and you you can't go like yeah <laughs> right yes you want to keep your job anyway right exactly yeah. so um do you think we're entering a, a golden age of game making now because of technology and these and you know indie publishers and steam and digital releases and you know good old games and all all this stuff popping up I think we might be. Uh, I think that's a question. Like a few years ago in comics, sorry to bring this back to comics, but no, uh, no, a few no. Years we ago talk in about comics. comics I think it was. I think it was Neil Gaiman posited that we were in a golden age of comics and didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has that has been proven to be true. You know, over the last five years, comics 
is almost unrecognizable now from what it was five years ago. The wide landscape of comics, I mean, not just focusing on the corporate mainstream stuff, but the whole landscape of the American comics industry is almost unrecognizable now from what it, how it was five years ago. And that's awesome. You know, it's all for the good. I wonder if we might be in a similar situation with games where we could actually be in the sort of early stages of a golden age and we don't quite know it yet and we won't really be able to say for sure until a few years time when we can look around us and look at more um, more obvious differences between you know sort of five years ago and now or whatever and say oh yeah okay yeah things have really improved because it certainly feels like it you're right with especially the explosion of interest in indie games and so many people doing original stuff in the indie scene that mm-hmm. I, you know, yeah, I, I, I hope we are, and I think maybe we are, but I think it's a little early to say for sure. I actually think the comics analog is is perfect to to compare to the games industry. I mean, if you think about what led to what we're doing with comics now, so much of it had to do with, uh, with stuff being online. And I and I think to the broader spectrum, like I I know you threw out kind of the big two and everything, but but Marvel and DC essentially getting purchased by much larger companies, no one can deny that that has led to these doors being opened for people interested in not just superhero comics, but in all comics and comics in general. Yes. Oh, absolutely. You know, how many show? How many TV shows are based on comics now? Ten, eleven. Oh, it's God. crazy, isn't it? There's loads. Yeah. Yeah. And most of them are okay you know uh, some yeah, are better than the, others no that's the amazing thing Anthony and that and that's something that that I want that always amazes me is I keep waiting for one of these to be a dud and and really I don't know can you point out one real dud arrow's been good flash has been good agents daredevil is fantastic agents of shield yeah. oh, no. <laughs> agents I like of agents of shield I like if there's you know I okay. enjoy it when I'm watching it uh-huh. I enjoy Agents of Shield when I'm watching it. I enjoy Haley Atwell when I'm watching her. Mm-hmm. I think she and her character is great. But the minute I watch any other comic book show, I go, Agents of Shield is not very good. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not it's very definitely good. the weakest, right? It's the weakest by far, yeah. Well, it's just it's just missing. I think part of that comes from the fact that it's not using characters. From, well, it's it started using some characters from the comics, but because they started with okay, these are mostly all this is an all original team, original characters that immediately put them at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. I don't even think it's point. that. I think I think the reason why is because you got Arrow, you got the Flash. Soon you'll have the Supergirl show, the spinoff. They're all in Daredevil. It's like mm-hmm. this is a show about. Superheroes. This is a show about heroes, but Agents of Shield and Agent Carter is like here's what's happening all around them. Like, like yeah, it's none, get... of, it's none of the superhero shit. So I don't care if they're new characters, but they're not doing anything. They're, it's all ancillary dancing around the bigger picture. And it's something that dawned on me this morning about Agents of Shield. It's like. Is anyone going to tell the Avengers that Coulson's alive? Wow, I it, he's been alive for so long. I he's didn't been alive for a long time. It. Like I watched Winter Soldier. Maria Hill knows that Coulson's alive. She's known for like a year. Did at any point did she just when she's sitting there with them go? 
by the way, you should know. Your super <laughs> best – you know who else is alive besides Nick Fury? Your friend Coulson. <laughs> well, he's not, a, he's not a super, so he's not important, right? Neither's Nick Fury. Well, <laughs> But it's it's very odd that they're keeping that one. Um, I'm going down a f- rat hole that's uh, pointless. One that we um, all love, and you keep talking about it, sir. You know what's interesting to me is these days is that, talking about a golden age of video games, is that when I was younger, um, if I talked to someone in my age group that had aspirations to do creative work when they grew up, it was they wanted to be in comics. Or I had a couple friends that were really interested in making movies, and usually they were people that wanted to make horror movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I never met... You know, when you're a teenager, you never want to meet anyone that wants to... One day I'm going to make rom-coms. They all want to make horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you talk to anyone in that age group now, they all want to make video games. Yeah, man. They want to be YouTubers or they want to make video games. It's the new medium it's, for storytelling. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Everyone wants to go to DigiPen. Everyone wants to make video games. Yeah. And I, I think that what's going to end up happening is as that generation ages, that, that uh, uh, insider knowledge, uh, that permeation that Anthony was talking about of, you know, what it takes to make a video game will become more widespread because those people will essentially inherit the earth. So but, you think we've got 10 more years maybe until we hit that saturation point? Right, because I think at that point, if also what's happening is if you, if you draw a, tra- a trajectory of production styles and technology that go into making a movie and, and the same uh, chart... Um, or trajectory for what goes into making a move, uh, video game, I bet those are headed towards each other in a collision course. Mm. Hmm. And so I think they're just going to become, you know, synonymous at some point. Um, you know, you're seeing it in the advertising already. The technology's just a little bit behind. But when you see an ad for the new Battlefield game and Kevin Spacey is... Mm. you know, being represented in the trailer, then <clears throat> other than the technology, because they're showing in-game footage, other than the technology making it look like movie quality, um, it's the same thing, you know? It's presented the same thing media-wise. Another thing I'm noticing as far as the golden age of video games is five years ago, if you ask someone, what are you playing right now? You're going to get a list of AAA titles. It's yeah. going to be Halo or something. If you ask people <clears throat> what they're playing right now, a lot of times you get... Steam. You yeah, know, I'm on Steam. Candy Crush. Well, not even that. It's Peggle. it's it's people <laughs> people are saying people are saying Steam. Well, like it, it's a game, yeah. Like it's a game, but what it is is it's just, you know, it just means they're jumping from indie title to indie title to, you know, to pre-release to alpha yeah, build. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> How long before we're in a uh, a Steam uh, a Steam style or an Amazon style Steam debate, right? Yeah, where publishers are are negotiating contracts with Valve. Maybe I don't know. Oh no, Anthony, we lost your mic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's been saying amazing things. Hit the <laughs> hit, hit the mic button, top left. 
How do you keep from timing ah, out? Ah, got it. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. I yeah, I think you timed out. I'm like, man, Anthony is surprisingly quiet on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you've heard our postulating. Now, tell us. Uh, the, <laughs> no, the... It's, it, the whole Steam thing is really interesting, yeah. Um, because it's, I mean, in theory, that's what the App Store was supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, it's just this flat storefront where you can find every kind of game and app that you like. And, of course, what we've seen with the App Store, unfortunately, instead is the you know this race to the bottom and so oh, much God. trash. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Steam, for whatever reason, seems to have largely avoided that. Not completely, but largely avoided that. And you're right, it makes it very easy for people to go from a big AAA, from Call of Duty or whatever, over to Gone Home and, you know, the path or something and find these strange little indie games that are brilliant games. And, you know, it, it, it's this is, again, the perennial problem in comics, isn't it? I've spoken with about this many times with Corey, it's just the case of getting it in people's hands. Yeah. We know there are so well, many books out there that people would love if they could just, if they just even knew they existed. <laughs> and Steam yeah. really helps I with think indie it's a, games. It's a, tech, it's a technological problem on, on comics end. And, and I think this is where video games have an advantage is the, the hardware. Like remember that even 10 years ago where it felt like six months after you bought a computer you were effed, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the yeah. hardware was moving so quickly. And and even the so the software, I guess, how do I explain it? The software was growing faster than the hardware was growing. So you were at this place where it was like a new game would come out and your system wouldn't run the damn thing because you yeah. bought it six months ago and now you had yeah. to upgrade this or upgrade that. Well, now we're at a place where you can buy a computer, a Mac or a PC for that matter, and you're good to go for like five years. I mean, really, yeah. you can do you can space these things out. My, I, I have a um, a doghouse system that I use for uh, gaming, a big PC, and uh, and doghouses are amazing. By the way, if you're interested, small company, you should check them out. They're great. Um, you know, they build these amazing gaming rigs that are relatively expensive. They're good intro points. Uh, but I don't feel like I need to buy a computer again for a long time. It was my first PC for literally seven years. Seven yeah. years. <clears throat> wow. I mean, I didn't have to... No game came out that was crushing my previous PC, which was a really simple, like, a, a Dell all around. You could do anything with it, right? It was it was like, a, you know, your first computer out of college kind of thing. You, you know what I'm saying? Ironically, now, it feels like we're more appro we're approaching something closer to the console market. Where, yeah, you, know, you would buy a console once every five, six years or something. And of course, everybody's now deriding that and saying, "Oh well, that's dead. The console market's dead. We don't want hardware that we can only update every five or six years." But it's actually becoming less necessary to yeah. update it yeah, faster yeah. than that because this. I think that we're hitting a plateau on a software level where we're not we're not building software that is crushing the hardware anymore it's just not happening or in some cases like how many retro games do you see now that these are games that could be played on much older systems oh yeah yeah, yeah. that are that are really popular because the the mechanics of the game and and the story of the game the idea of the game has become way more important and relevant than you know than the the graphical capabilities or uh you know or or uh, or the universe that is being built, or how far you can see into the distance, and that kind of stuff. I've Absolutely. been saying this for 
Yeah, I've been saying this for a long time. Um, uh, I'm quite proud of the fact that you know, many, many years ago, I did several interviews about this sort of thing and talking about how uh, graphics just isn't that important. Once you reach a certain level of realism, yeah. people, most people simply don't care. Yes, there will always be people who want to play the latest Crisis and you know ramp everything up to max and have all the wonderful high-res graphics that they can get hold of. But the vast majority of gamers, as long as something looks around about sort of late-era PS3 quality, they're fine with that. You know, that's that's enough. You don't need well, to anymore, be any more, any more sort of realistic than that for people to immerse themselves in it. You don't even need to be that. I mean, look as you say, look at the rise of retro 8 and 16-bit style games. I've got a nine-year-old at home that is nuts over the 8-bit games. Uh, his, his, the one he's enamored with right now is uh, called Shovel Knight, and that's, uh, that's oh, yeah, got to be an indie game. Uh, it is, yeah. Uh, but he's nuts over that. And when he's not doing that, it's uh, it's Pokemon uh, wall-to-wall, which, you know, the, the graphics or are very nice. But, uh, or Minecraft. Yeah, or Minecraft, exactly. Minecraft, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and all of that Minecraft. has very, I don't want to say rudimentary graphics, but none of that is particularly 3D. Yeah, it's We forget that we lost ourselves in these games when they were just 8-bit. So why wouldn't people nowadays lose wow. themselves as well, in just the same way? I mean, let's, let's be honest real quick. We all lost ourselves in games when they were 4-bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Come well, on, and little, you know, little Yars, goes, little Yars Revenge. Anybody? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes back to what McLeod said too. You know, um, you know, the more stylized you get, the more you, uh, the more universal like, it is. The, the more, more universal can, it can seems. Yeah, it. The, yeah. The more you can project yourself into the fiction. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So when you're uh, when you're writing, I, I want to talk to you about your writing, Anthony, because I've. I've always felt like uh, in, in my years working with you, like kind of like you're a, a have pen will travel sort of guy. It, it, <laughs> it, it, but and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like I know so many people, I know so many creators, so many young creators that say, I want to be a writer. And I go, OK, um, what do you want to write? Well, I have this story idea and it's uh, yeah, yeah, OK, OK. Back up. You want to be a writer. Right. OK, good. So go write. But like. Their own, they say they want to be a writer, but really they, they want to create this one story idea that they have, you know, a 500-page binder full of stuff. And that's I think that's great. But I feel like they're unwilling to just go and write, to go and take a job and write something. Mm-hmm. Whereas in my years of experience with you, I feel like, you know, you're just out there and, and you're saying, you know, what do you, you know, what do you want me to write? And, and your list goes on and on for, for people listening. Just a few of the titles that come to mind that you've worked on. Uh, Dead Space, the whole Dead Space series, right? Mm-hmm. Well, most of, not, most not of quite it. all of it, but yeah, most uh, of it. Shadow, more recently, Shadows of Mordor, that's you, right? Uh, well, I was one of the writers on it, but again, that was a team of nine people. Sure. Uh, you've written two or three um, novels, YA novels, correct? Uh, no, I've written two novels, n- not YA, but I do, I write the adaptations, uh, the graphic novel adaptations of a series of YA novels, the so, Alex Rider. Okay, series. yeah. So these are adaptations of, of novels. Again, a lot of this stuff, like you're saying, I'm one of the writers on this. I wrote some of that. I write the adaptation of this. But then in addition to all of that, uh, Fuse, Wasteland, I mean, these are all things that you own that are that are your properties, sure, right? Sure, yeah. 
So yeah, I, I won't. I mean, just to sort of not to take issue with it, but to kind of explain, I won't. I don't just rock up and say, "Okay, what do you want me to write?" Um, I, <laughs> contrary to what you may think, I do. I do actually select my jobs. Um, the way I, the way I look at it is, I won't work on something that doesn't interest me. And I have turned down many jobs, both in comics and games, simply because. It just doesn't interest. I look at it and go, nah, no, no, not interested. But, um, but you're willing to work on something that's not necessarily yours. Oh, sure, sure. If it interests me, yeah. If I find it challenging or if it's something I've never done before or if it's just a, an area, you know, a subject or a genre that, that really interests me. Um, so, yeah, I am, you know, a little more discerning than that, but that I can... I also am interested in doing that stuff because, as you say... Aside from that, I have this other sort of side to my work, which is all the creator-owned comics stuff, where, yeah, I own it, I create it, it's all original, and I tend to work, well, certainly my creator-owned stuff, I work on stuff where nobody can tell me what to do. Um, and that's my that's my sort of two outlets, if you like. That's why I backed away from doing superhero stuff and don't work for Marvel anymore. Um, I didn't fall out with them. I just lost interest. I never had, you know, I didn't grow up reading superhero comics, so I have no nostalgic affection for them. Uh, I they don't know, have worked, them there. Uh, we we used to get them, but that I was just, a joke. We, I was being uh, a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I was being a dick. Right, sure, but there's a serious point there, which is that when I was a kid, the only way to get superhero comics, they were used as ballast in cargo ships crossing the Atlantic in bundles, and they wow. would then be yeah, and they would be delivered to given to like news agents and stores and what have you, and you'd just get a big pile of them. There was no order to them. There was no there were certainly no specialist shops selling them at that time. There was wow. no way to say, I would like to get the next month's issue of Superman, please. You couldn't do that. And so you just, you know, you got whatever was in that pile. And I did do that a little. But what we also had at the time was a massive British comics industry, which we yeah. don't have anymore, unfortunately. But we had a huge British comics industry. And that, because it was homegrown, obviously, that you could order and reserve and say, I'd like next week's issue of 2000 AD. Next, oh, it was weekly as well, not monthly. Next week's issue of Scream. Next week's issue of Eagle, whatever. And so what, those were the comics that we all grew up reading. What led to that downfall? What what ended the British comic scene? Uh, a and, whole and, num number sorry, of factors. Distribution back, being one of the main ones. Back up, back up. You said a weekly issue of a comic, right? Yeah, yeah. A wow. weekly issue. How many pages? <laughs> oh, they were anthology comics. They were oh. all anthology comics. So, you, so they, you they were guess. doing kind of what uh, what they do in East Southeast Asia, where you've got big books of multiple things, right? Right, except they weren't big books. They were still like, you know, 24, 28-page comics, but they would have uh, three, four, five-page chapters of multiple stories in them. So, like, if you go and look at, say, you know, any of the Judge Dredd archives that are being reprinted, you'll notice that every chapter is like five or six pages long, but you would get one every week. So when you add it all up at the end of the month, you would have the equivalent of you know the page of the monthly mm -hmm. US. I comic. wonder. I wonder why they moved away from that. I wonder why nobody ever did that in the US. Uh, again, probably distribution. The US is so much physically bigger. It costs so much more to ship 
something weekly to get it printed weekly to you know store it weekly etc etc I mean I'm just guessing there but I'm gonna I know that a lot of you know things in the US and in your infrastructure are down to sh simply the sheer size of the country which obviously isn't something that we have to consider over here well and also it's moved away from how publishing works globally now in that everybody wants just what they want and the only problem I would have with that kind of a publication is that chances are there'd be two stories in there that I really liked and three stories that I couldn't stand. You know what I mean? So you're always yeah. going to buy something that well, has a certain amount of content in it that you don't like. Yeah, that's one of the reasons, it's always one of the reasons given for why anthology comics don't work very well mm -hmm. in the US. Over here, A, they were incredibly cheap. I mean, insanely yeah. cheap. Even, even you know, allowing for inflation and stuff. In the 1980s, 2000 AD cost 12 pence a week. Wow. That's even wow. even allowing for inflation and what have you. That's the equivalent mm -hmm. to like fifty cents. Um, you know, it was so insanely cheap that it really did not matter uh, whether you only liked one or two strips. But also, frankly, they were really good, and mm -hmm. they were all themed around subjects. Like two thousand eighty was all sci-fi. Uh, later, it branched out into fantasy. But it was you know to start with, it was all sci-fi. Eagle was sort of boys' adventure, lots of war stories and thrillers and you know action stories. Uh, Action Force was our equivalent of G.I. Joe. Battle was all war stories. Scream was all horror stories. So, uh, and in the girls' side, you had Misty, which was like girls' horror stories. So they were all. <laughs> I love I that it's, it's girls' horror stories. <laughs> what is that? No, I just I love that you qualified it. You didn't you didn't say uh, you know in Misty, which was you didn't say for girls. You said girls' horror stories. Uh, okay. Well, no. It's the, that's accurate, isn't it? <laughs> no, it, it it absolutely is. I just I just love that it's not like it 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 uh, it's not often when you it's talk not, about it's not a genre that would ever be made here, right? Oh, I'm sure, like, yeah. Even, even here, even today, we're still trying to get people to just produce comics for for girls for a female readership well, or a subgenre a subgenre of a genre, oh, okay. yeah. Okay, Which is yeah. sci-fi for girls? Like what? Yeah, yeah okay. Now no, I get you. No, you I mean you. science yeah. fiction? You mean girls read sci-fi? What? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's uh. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You mean yeah, princesses, yeah. right? You mean princesses? <laughs> <laughs> no, science fiction. Yeah. Um. But for so, girls. So it was. It was much easier to. It was much easier to assume that your audience would probably like most of the strips in a comic because. Because they were themed. So if you liked sci-fi, you know, you'd probably like most of the strips in any given issue of 2000 AD. And that was certainly the case. Well, I, I, I don't know. I always, I always get annoyed when people are like, well, I wouldn't buy that thing because there's stuff in it that I, that I don't like. And I think, I think that, the, that the financial entry point for you guys was probably a big one. But, uh, you know, I found when I was living uh, in Japan that the, the buying a weekly for one story that I was into usually led me to discover other things because you have this big book and there's all that stuff in it and you're you know you're sitting on a train or like you know or even at your office board or whatever and you're going to flip through it and you're going to inevitably you're going to read something Some, sometimes i think that we i found have... myself reading stuff i didn't like just to know what happened <laughs> i think we have proof i think we have proof Back to agents of shield again Right. <laughs> 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 or powers on PS4. I keep watching it. I don't know why. Or the blacklist because you're a spadist. Yes, <laughs> I am a spadist. God damn it! 
Um, I think we have proof in this country that anthologies will work if presented correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Because the funny pages are an anthology. Yeah, true. True. Well, but there again, it's co- it's the entry point and the cost, isn't it? Yeah, the funny pages are right. essentially, f- you think of them as being free with the newspaper that you've paid for. They were uh, subsidized I- by all the advertising. Don't yeah. tell a syndicated cartoonist that, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Corey's experience in Japan, all of those ma- huge manga anthologies in Japan right. are yeah. dirt cheap. Yeah, it was three, know, 300 really... pages for the equivalent of about two bucks. The big yeah, ones, the big, the big ones would cost you maybe three fifty. And I'm talking. So does that like, mean? Yeah, does that mean the creators pages. are getting paid shit? Uh, no. Well, no. certainly not in in the case of the British anthologies. No, because they were selling so many. Uh, that, you I, know, I think it, that's I height, think that's true of Japan as well. I, I would assume it is. Yeah, certainly at its height. You know, most sort of British boys' adventure comics like 2000 AD and Eagle and so on were selling over 100,000 copies a week. Some of them, multiple hundreds of thousands of copies every week. That's so, awesome. Yeah, so, th- so the revenue was so huge, you didn't have to charge a massive cover price in order to... Now, I'm not going to say that it was a golden age where everybody was being paid a fortune to make comics. That's absolutely not the case. You know, rates compared to modern-day sort of Marvel and DC rates were not that great. But they were certainly enough that you could make a, f- a comfortable full-time living drawing five pages of comics a week. Well, as Corey was describing to me when we first started kind of working together, how things work in Japan and how, you know, how their comics are kind of done. And I'm like, what the hell aren't we trying to sell our comics in Japan? And he's like, because the market is fucking crazy competitive. You'll never get a foothold and you're white. And I'm like, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it- Look, here, here's the thing that people always forget when it comes Amer- to... American comics are not manga. No, 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 no. And, and Comicu. Th- this is the thing, too. I, I think what there's did a couple... you just say? <laughs> Comicu. Oh, Comicu? I, I think there's a couple of things that people forget about comics outside of America, right? I, I think the first one is that people make comics for for basically for minimum wage. You know, here in America, when we think of like people making entertainment, we tend to think of celebrity, we tend to think of big money, we tend to think of like we forget that most creators are making a, a, their minimum wage, you know, their, their, their middle income livings, right? How is that different from us? Uh, well, it, it's not, but that's the thing that people don't understand is here in America, they assume Brad. that what? <laughs> here. Here in America, <laughs> you know they they assume that we're all that we're all rich because we're making this stuff, and you see it with young kids, right? I think overseas, you know, outside of America, and I think this is probably true for the UK as well. Somebody who's making a comic or who's a writer or whatever, it's like they have they have a normal job. I mean, they make they make a you know a, a decent wage and their middle income, and that's the way it is. So I think that's part of the thing with Japan. I, I think the other thing people forget in Japan, uh, and I just was talking with uh, Deb Aoki about this um, this last weekend. We're going to get her on the show uh, as well. But she and I were discussing um, Japanese, the Japanese book industry this last year. Uh, they did about $8 billion in sales. Mm. Yeah, uh, sounds about right. The U.S. did about $700 million. This is bullshit. Okay. 
And and just just to drive the point home, we have about 300 million people in in North America, you know, US and Canada. I, I think like right. 300 350 million people. Japan has about 150 million people, like 127 or 130 million people, right? So they have like half our population and they're doing 10 times the amount of business in comics. Right, but and there's also don't their forget power. They're a commuter country. That's it, absolutely. Yeah. You have to take that into account, uh, and that's the case over here as well. It's one of the reasons why our fiction—I'm talking novels rather than comics—but it's one of the reasons why our fiction market has generally, historically, always been healthy because so many people take the train to get to work. Whereas right. in the U.S., that's you know outside of the Northeast, that's just not the case. I actually well, think that that that's part of why mobile games are blowing up. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, because you can play them real quick while you... And, and you can play them anywhere. You know, <laughs> so, even, even in the States, I think that's true. Well, and talking, going to bring this back to games, we were t- talking about things like the point of entry, uh, the price point of entry. That's yeah. one of the reasons, you know, you, again, you can see this in games. It's one of the reasons why the race to the bottom has been so successful for companies that can make it work. Because suddenly, when a game is free, or might cost you at the most, you know, $1.99, millions and millions of people are willing to go, oh, yeah, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll play that. But when you try and charge $60 for it, you know, then you, unless you're Call of Duty, good luck selling more than a million copies in today's market. Yeah. Well, and just so listeners are aware, when, when Anthony talks about the race to the bottom, it, think about like a glass ceiling. When, when people speak about that in business, like you can only get so high. Uh, that's true for mobile games as well. What, what we saw with mobile games is a, a large uh, portion of the, the AAA game industry moved into mobile games and they started doing everything in their power because they have power and money to drive the cost of games down, pat, even past free is what they used to talk about when I was working at Namco, which makes no sense. But yeah. they, they're <laughs> trying to drive the cost of games uh, so free but then they still need to monetize, so they're filling it with so much purchase stuff and DLC and, and garbage yeah. that, mm. that then you hit this concrete floor, and there's no way to break through the concrete floor. And the, the bad thing about A Race to the Bottom is that what we should be paying for mobile games, which I think is about a, a buck to five bucks for most mobile games, right, is now is considered maybe not so great. I, I actually think it's that's... considered exorbitant. People see like something yeah. costs $3 and they're like, I'm not paying $3 for a mobile game when I can select from, you know, 100,000 freemium games that cost right. me right. nothing to download. But I think it's coming back around now. I think I think because of some games like, um, uh, what is the... the Friday Monument Night Valley? Monument Valley, or what's the Freddy game that they're about to make four oh, of them now? Friday Nights at Freddy. Friday Night Freddy's. at Freddy, yeah. Oh, right, so, yeah. like, you I know, know these... that's the thing, right? <clears throat> it's not that people don't. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not that people don't want to pay three bucks for a game. They don't want to pay three bucks to find out if this is a game they want to pay three bucks for. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, once they yeah. know they like Angry Birds, they'll pay three bucks for the new Angry Birds. I wonder if we're going to see the rise of demos again. Remember how demos were a big thing and then they kind of went away? Well, in the App Store, what they used to do... <clears throat> oh, what's wrong with my throat? What they used to do at the App Store is that um, there was a free version and then a paid version. Right. And, and that kind of went away. 
I think the problem they fa- they saw there was that getting people people would play the free version and they would get to the end and then they'd just play the free version again. Yeah. Moving yeah. them on to the paid version was really really difficult. And unfortunately, uh, Apple does not allow uh, sh- you know sort of shareware style demos on the app store and they never have and uh, you know that's many developers have spoken about how that's one of the things that's distorted the market enormously since the app store became you know such a huge marketplace is that you simply can't make a demo version you can make a free version of a game but you can't make a demo version that people uh, will sort of pay for pay you know play a little bit and then upgrade to a regular version, the only way of doing that is with in-app purchases. And yeah, with DLC. If you're going to have in-app purchases, right? And if you're going to have in-app purchases, people expect the first download to be free. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's replaced the concept of demos. But as I say, the problem that they've found is that lots of people will just play the free portion and then go back and play that again, and will never actually pay to upgrade. Hence, instead, you know, energy mm-hmm. mechanics and in-app purchases and stuff that, that have evolved that stuff to basically get nuts. around it. Yeah, it makes me crazy too. <laughs> Isn't I, it? I can't say too much because two. I've I've have also written some mobile games, and uh, two of the biggest mobile games that I've written use en- an energy mechanic. And I'll you son of a bitch! Pop, so. <laughs> I know it, it's all my fault. I mean, I will emphasize: I'm a writer, not a designer. So, um, um, so you know, I have these, a question. These weren't my choices, mm-hmm. but I have a question for you, Anthony, in uh, that that is uh, pertaining towards something that's been in the comic book news. Uh, the last couple days, um, you've worked work for hire um, <clears throat> for multiple companies, correct? Uh, yes. And you've worked work for hire for comics, would you say? Uh, yeah, yeah, not not as much as games, but yes, I have. I, have I've you... written for Marvel. <clears throat> I've done work for Hire for Avatar. The graphic novel adaptations of those YA books <clears throat> that I do work for hire. So yeah. When you did work for hire for Marvel, did you create any characters? No, deliberately. Deliberately. Oh yeah. What do you think about the Jerry Conway? uh, I think it's an absolute travesty. I think Jerry Conway and creators like that have been robbed. I think DC Entertainment should be ashamed of themselves. And this is why I have never created an original character for Marvel or DC, and never would. I mean, unless they were going to pay me some ridiculous, enormous one-off payment for that particular issue or something, I never would because then they own it. I'm I'm not going to give them that. Sorry. God, I love you. So let's <laughs> just lips. just to uh, just to catch everybody up. You mean you're not going to do it for 12 years, then bitch about it on a blog later? Strangely, no. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, that just, seems like it would work. Wait a second. To, to be fair to guys like Conway, in his generation, there was no choice. Uh, I understand you know, that. Was, I understand that, and I. But pe- but creators of my generation and creators coming up now, they have no excuse. Right. They know. We all know. We know that we've heard the horror stories. We know how the business works. You have to, and I, and I know some creators, I'm not going to name any names, but I have spoken to creators uh, working now who understand and accept that this goes on. And basically they have, you know, weighed up and said, okay, uh, I know I'm going to get screwed if I create an original character, but... In exchange, I'm getting this exclusive, which is worth this amount of money. You know, so it's, it's the equivalent. But they figure it out. They don't just do it willy nilly. It's the equivalent of I'm doing this for exposure. Which you say mm-hmm. that to any artist. Oh, why would I work on this exposure? And they go, ah, f you, right? But uh, just just to catch everybody up who's listening, um, 
Oh, so sometimes it can be worth it. Absolutely. I have sure. no doubt whatsoever that my uh, creator-owned comics would sell better if I had done more work for Marvel or DC. Uh, you, th- you cannot convince me that that's not the case. No, because I look at my contemporaries who have done a lot more work for Marvel and DC uh, <clears> and their creator-owned books, frankly, sell a lot more than mine because a lot more of their fans I guarantee follow them you, over. I guarantee you, you pick one successful webcomic guy and his stuff is comparatively outselling all of those guys. Oh, I'm sure. I I'm guarantee sure, I'm talking, it. No, I absolutely believe that, but I'm talking about within the context of print comics. Okay, agreed. So th- this conversation for our listeners sparks around mm-hmm. um, a, a new bond, new, new-ish model of what DC Entertainment is doing. Um, DC uh, and Marvel obviously own all of the characters that, that they create. So DC owns Superman, DC owns Batman, uh, and we'll just use these as examples. Uh, if you're a writer and you write something about Batman, say you invent some new thing about Batman, DC owns that. You don't own that. Um, but DC famously a, a while ago started giving creators a, a small portion of the profit of some of a character that they create. So if uh, you were the creator of Robin, let's say Batman's you know sidekick, then anytime Robin appears in something, you would get a portion of that. When in something outside of comics, let's be clear, correct royalty within you'd comics. Get... But if it was exploited in other media, yes, you'd sure. get a small payment. So when DC turned into DC Entertainment, basically when they were purchased by Warner Brothers, um, using legal loopholes, they determined that certain things were derivative of other things. So <laughs> Robin is essentially just Batman, only he's well, a kid. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. There's two issues here because that that is almost more acceptable than the other thing that drives me up the fucking wall. And yeah, I think the it's a bigger th- atrocity. What's the other thing? They didn't change the royalty policy. You still will get your, your royalty. Now, they right. did find yeah, the correct. loophole of derivative works. But the difference is that but you're responsible for ahead of time submitting a form yes. for your royalty in the case that the thing you created might possibly in the future be used. So uh, Jerry's example was if you created Felicity Smoke from the Flash, from Arrow and the Flash, if right. you created her in the comics and then they use her in Arrow it's too late to submit the form. You have to submit it. First of all, it's bullshit. You have to submit the form anyway for your royalties. Right. They should be saying, hey, we used one of your characters. Here's your royalty. Well, and that's what they used to do. That's what they used to do. Well, I'm, not only that, I'm actually, I'm actually going to side with DC on this one. It's oh. your due diligence. You created the character. You need, oh, when, when you write the thing, you create the character. You need to fill out the form. Answer sure, me but this. The problem Why? is that they were never offered those forms when they created the characters. That, so now they're asking that I, people like Jerry to right. remember 500 characters that he created over the See, course of 20 years. Now, now so that I have a problem with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That that I think is BS. But uh, if if going forward it exists now, when you write a comic, if you invent a new character, you you absolutely need to make sure you're protecting your rights on it. It's the same with any copyright or trademark. You know, if somebody starts making one of our comics if they start taking our comic and posting it elsewhere and this happens all the time mm-hmm. it's not it's not their responsibility to to make sure that that's protected it's our responsibility we have to go to them and say hey you don't get to do that 
Yeah, but that's two different issues. It's uh, not. That, it's not two different issues. If you create a, else using my stuff and you're comparing that to DC, that's, yeah, that's DC a completely stuff. different issue. Corey. It is not a completely different issue. You created Felicity Smoke, okay? Someone, yes. someone else takes Felicity Smoke and puts her in another medium, in a not comic medium. If you're with, not, if you're not with telling DC's permission or without. It, it, regardless, if you're not telling DC, cool. if you're I'm not telling, telling DC you, to protect that character, then you're not doing your due diligence as a creator. Corey. No, the you got to do your due diligence. Oh, my God. Let no. me finish my sentence. Go ahead. <laughs> it's pointless. That, they've changed it to where it's pointless. If Jerry well, did his yeah. due diligence, they would say you didn't submit the form prior to us doing well, it. And that's right. and that's he's got to be clairvoyant. Uh, that's the problem that I have with this is the loophole that, that we didn't quite get to because we started talking about the forms. But the loophole is that they're just claiming that any any superhero character is derivative of another superhero character. Therefore, you don't own them. So Superboy is just Superman. He's derivative of Superman. Therefore, you don't owe him. Well, uh, worse yet, Power Girl is yeah, supposedly a uh, der- derivation of Superman. Right, Power Girl derivative of Superman. With therefore, that one you don't. Strongly enough. Yeah, no, I I agree. That's that's total bullshit. But I, you know, okay. I, so now, now so that I can get in trouble. Sure, go ahead. Can I play devil's advocate for a second? Yeah, do it. All right. If you created Power Girl, yeah. All right, like you just sat down one day and went, "What if there was another Kryptonian?" And she looked like this, and she her powers are like this, and this is her personality. And you create her, and then that gets exploited in other media, exactly what you created. Is that the same as if you went, um, you wrote an issue of, of The Flash, and there was a, a receptionist, her name was Felicity Smoke, and that was the end of it. And then when it came time to make Arrow, they go, well, Felicity Smoke is a name. We'll use that. And then some other writer on the TV show created the Felicity Smoke that we all know. And you're going to say that you deserve a royal... You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's a good point. I would say that it's a fair point, but I would say you do deserve a royalty, a smaller royalty, for sure. Sure. Absolutely. a, a, A more minor royalty. But it's not like there aren't several million different names in the English speaking I world that they can that, choose, but, you know? But what I'm Why saying is... Why call a character a name that all, has already been used in the comics? Yeah, I'm with Anthony on that one. I'll, I'll acknowledge that why. you're basing I'll, it on that character. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you exactly why. Because when you are a writer for a TV show, you know you're safe using characters that DC already owns. Right, but that's the point. You're using a character that DC already owns, and therefore the creator of that character should get some equity. And in no, this I case, agree. I'm going to go back to the due diligence because in this case, it's DC's due diligence to make sure that their new writers don't use characters that they're going to have to pay a royalty on. Well, and that's that's <laughs> a perfect example of that. And there will always be a way to get around it, but a perfect sure. example of that is Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. Okay. Uh, Tom Paris in Star Trek Voyager was supposed to be the character that that actor played in the Next Generation episode where he was the kid that pushed all the cadets to do that weird formation and got somebody killed. Oh, really? It was his character. But 
when it came time to do it, an executive said, wait a minute, if you use that character, we got to pay the writer of that episode for every fucking episode of Voyager that he appears in. So change his fucking name. Mm. Huh. So he became Tom Paris. I, I mean, I think that's totally okay. <laughs> Personally. Yeah, it's you know it's a company like being arseholes, but it's you know that's that's fair and legal. I think there was no if they had the, the difference is if they had used the same character, if they had kept him with the same name and then hadn't given that writer residuals, that's that would be you know yeah that's the real a problem. Arsehole. Yeah, yeah well, that's, and, that's when you've got an issue. And I think this is why we as creators have to put up with this kind of what what we we hear and we go this is nonsense. But the reason why we have to deal with it is because it's a double edged sword. It's protecting us as well. It's protecting the things that that we create as well. The writer who created who created the the Tom Paris analog in the in the original episode who who uh, was a kid and did the formation and all that kind of stuff, right? He absolutely would deserve for for the genesis of that creator or of that character to have to have received a payment on the other end if he's in Voyager. Absolutely, he deserves that. And, yeah. and you know, we can't play both sides of the board and get mad if a company is protecting their own copyright while we're trying to protect our own copyrights. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And actually, here's a, you know, for people who've suffered through all of this already, um, and are actually <laughs> looking for some, you know, general, some actual genuine business tips, here is a really, here's something I emphasize to so many young creators in all fields, and that is about contracts. Read your contract. Mm-hmm. Do yeah. not, like, when you read it, envision the worst thing that could happen with using the language of that contract. Right. And if in an extreme circumstance, forget about the fact that you're all friends and everybody loves one another and so-and-so is really trustworthy and they'd never do that to me. Think what, if your worst enemy had was on the other end of this contract, think what they could do to you. And if that thing is bad, do not ever feel bad about demanding that it be changed. And if you're in a position to do so, if they won't change it, walk away. Because that is how you protect yourself win contract negotiations. People say, oh, well, it says this, but we don't mean that. Well, then right. write it right. differently. Then change it. Change the language. Right. Exactly. Words but, have meanings. And more, more to the point, how many years apart was that character, the Tom Paris analog created to when, the, to when Tom Paris was created for, for Voyager? Mm. I mean, how many years was that, right? Oh, probably a decade. Right. Well, so no, here's here's, here's what you have to consider when you when you're reading these contracts. Most contracts have survival clauses. These are things that stay intact for a very long time, and ownership is always one of them. Always, always, always. So what you have to consider yeah. is that a decade from now, the people that you love, the people that are your friends with, and they would never do that, they're not going to be at that company anymore. Right. And they're right. not going to have yeah. control over that. They're not. You know, they may still be amazing people, and the people who come in behind them aren't evil. The people who come behind them don't know you, and they don't give a shit. Right. They, and they, and your contract, job. and yeah. your contract is not with those people. It's with the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, exactly. and that's something Corey you said on this show uh, many many episodes ago, but it bears repeating because it fits so well. And that is, you know, if you're in that situation that Anthony was talking about, where you don't like the wording, 
you are well within your rights to open up a, a, a negotiation. Yeah, of that open a dialogue. Ask. There is no business person that is going to shy away from a simple negotiation where you sit down and say, you know what, I don't like this clause, I don't like this wording. And if they do, uh, you, you don't want to work with why. them. I, exactly. If you do, yeah. you run the other way. You because, thank them for telling you who they are, and you get out. Yeah. Now, we have to acknowledge that you know some people don't feel like they're in a position to do that. You get this a lot when well, you're starting out, point. especially. But, but everybody are. is. Everybody exactly, is. Exactly. You have to realize because, that no matter how small you may think you are, no matter how unimportant if these people are trying to get you to sign a contract then you are valuable to them and right. therefore you are in a position to be able to negotiate mm -hmm. That's I, a great I think I think something else time, oh, oh go ahead Scott go ahead something else you have to realize is that for you this contract is this big huge life altering crossroads and for them it's Tuesday yeah they're not <laughs> yeah. they're not they've done it a million times so the I you're sitting there going god if I say I don't like this word they're gonna go what how dare you sir yes. a good day yes and that's, that's right. not how it works a <laughs> nice. lot of times a lot of times the reason why that wording is in there is because they've got 20 of these to write this month and they just gave you boilerplate yeah exactly and it was if written you, by a lawyer 10 years ago yeah in and it's easy and if you go yeah. I don't like this clause and they go oh which clause and you're like this one here and they're like alright I'll change it it's only in there because I didn't want to write this specifically just for you right like, we have these on file what don't <laughs> you like copy let page. me see if I can change it and then lawyer will go no and then you'll say well I have to and then he'll be like would you change it you know, it's not, it's when we were getting, um, when we were buying our house, we, our realtor, um, stopped every once in a while and we're like, yeah, we bought, we've bought a house before, you know, don't worry about it. We're good. And she's like, well, I like to, I like to slow down every once in a while because it's easy for realtors to forget that this is such a huge event for everyone. And for us, it's just not scary. Mm-hmm. But for it's super scary for people buying a house, right? Um, and I, I that's how I knew I really liked her because you know she thought about that. Yeah, yeah it's so realistic about. It's like I always tell people about interactions with fans at conventions. You know, when somebody stands in line to see you and shake your hand, to them, this is the only time they have ever met you. This, this is, is the, the this one is the moment, time they have yeah. ever shaken your hand. This is a big moment for them. For you, like you say, it's Tuesday. For you, they're the hundredth person you've seen today. They're just another person in the line. And I don't mean that to sound disparaging. You know, we all, and I hope you guys all agree, you know, we all love our fans. We all really love the fact that there are people crazy enough to want to read the stuff that we write mm -hmm. and consume the stuff that we create but when there are a thousand of you we can't possibly <laughs> remember you all we can't possibly treat you all to a, you know a half hour chat it's just not feasible and so <laughs> but you have to remember it so the, my point is that it becomes very easy to be dismissive uh, and that's when you're in trouble and so you have to bear that in mind as a creator and remember for this person it's special and even if you're in a bad mood, even if you're having a bad day, even if the last person in line was a real jerk, this mm -hmm. next person knows nothing about that. All they yeah. know is that they've been standing in line for 30 minutes to shake your hand and say how much they love your work. Well, I've told – I can't tell you how many times Corey and I have been walking back, and we always discuss about how exhausting it is because you got to be on. Because yeah. you yeah. want to be yeah. up and bright and – 
you know, you're trying to match their level of of, of excitement, excitement, yeah. Yeah. while at the same time trying not to match it because you don't want to be like, I know it's me. Isn't it exciting? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> No, but I know exactly what you mean. You want to maintain that sincerity. You want to be genuinely sincere. Yeah. When I say to people, it is exhausting. Yeah, it really is. But but that's because you're being sincere. If it's not exhausting, that's when you've got a problem. It's exhausting (laughs) because when you say to somebody, "Thank you for reading my work," you mean it. If you don't mean it, then that's not going to tire you out. But if you genuinely mean it and you're doing that. 500 times in a day at a convention or something. Yes, that will be exhausting, but that's uh-huh. good. Let's yeah. talk let's talk some more about fans cuz I brought this up earlier. I, I want to talk about misconceptions uh that fans have with uh the the created works that they enjoy. And we talked about it a little bit about how I find on the business end a lot of fans seem to think that we're all wealthy. That it's not mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that 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 we're making more than they are at their at their paper pushing job or you know at the at the oil changing place or at the grocery checkout or whatever when when realistically those are that's kind of what we're all making <laughs> when you when you sit down Almost. and do the numbers <laughs> with, with the exception of like obviously the sort of the really successful uh, outliers, most of the people I know working in games and comics could be earning twice as much by putting those same skills to use in a more you know normal corporate environment. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Without fail. Uh, so, what do you find, Anthony, when when you're do you ever get the perception when you're talking to fans that they have this idea about what you do? That is not. I mean, we had talked before about how with video games. When I was when I was working at Namco, I, every time I talked to someone, I was like, "You have no idea how this works." Even I going in, I had no idea how it works. Um, do you find Did you that, read that piece with your fans from on? Anthony Birch not so long ago? Uh, no. He used to work for Kotaku and then to went to work for Gearbox. Um, I can't remember. It was it was on Kotaku, I think. Uh, and it was basically I had no idea how hard it was to make a video game until I went to make one. Um, it's a really, really good and well-written piece about the, what he used to think about how games were made when he was a, a reviewer and critic, and then when he actually went to work for Gearbox and worked on Borderlands 2, the reality of what he discovered. It's really, really good and interesting. And of course, there are people in the comments literally contradicting him and saying, no, this this is not true. And you're like, you know, fans, I mean, you're like, hang on. <laughs> but that's, that's inevitable, isn't it? That's comment sections for you. Um, but it's a really good article. I can't remember what it's called, but it's by Anthony Birch, and I'm pretty sure it's on Kotaku. Just Google it and you'll find it. It's really the, good. The, you, you spoke of media, and the thing that used to always drive me insane uh, when I was working at Oni Press was when I would talk to members of the press, you know, to media people who are covering our stuff, and they would make these statements, and in my head I'd go, you, you're an idiot. Like, you have no idea how this works. <laughs> but you can't say that to them because you're, you're, you know, you're like, you're trying to get good press for a book or whatever. Right, and, right, and, right. and then uh, I, I would, about a year ago, uh, we were doing our five questions around Emerald City, and I got to talk to Ron Richards, who used to work at iFanboy, who uh, then went on to work at Image uh, in their marketing department. And, yep. you know, we, we recorded a little bit, but after we stopped recording, I was like, so what do you think? He's like, I had no idea, man. I had no, I thought I was so close to comics. Like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. and I didn't know how the sausage was made. And now, so I, I would love and, it. And now that I do, I'm amazed that anybody ever makes sausages. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, why are you still making those damn sausages? Yeah. I, I would love for each of us to, to, 
um, about comics or, or games or whatever, any any form of entertainment, to drop a here's something that that you as a fan don't know is happening to make your thing work. And okay, well, of, here, here's ahead, something, go and I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do this one first because I know that Scott and Brad, you guys do the whole package, don't you? You you don't collaborate as such. Uh, in this, uh, actually, in, I well, collaborate a lot now, but normally, I yeah. That's, oh, that's, not, that's, not, how, you, that's not how you started, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I forgot that you you write stuff for other people now as well, don't you? So my apologies. Um, but you know that's all I've ever done. And uh, one thing that people do not understand, and I've I've got in trouble because I've lost my temper on occasion and sort of you know virtually shouted at reviewers saying like how can you make these assumptions people don't know who does what on a regular print comic they think they do they think everything that they see in text uh, is the writer's fault and everything that's drawn is the artist's fault and you know every piece of color is the colorist's fault they do not understand what collaboration is and you know, in a way, there's no reason they should because they're not involved in it, and obviously, you want to try and make it seem seamless. But the number of times on my own books and on friends' books that I see reviewers make assumptions that I know are wrong, and they say, "Oh, so and so scripted this part brilliantly," and you're like, "Well, actually, no, that was suggested by the artist," or you know, yeah. or so sort of say, "Oh, well, the fight choreography by this artist is magnificent." You're like, "No, I saw the script for that, and that was all written in the script." Um, you just you can't make those assumptions and be correct. People do, and they will make those assumptions. But when you do make those assumptions, you are almost always wrong. Even, even, <laughs> it was a good one, when I was working at Marvel on Daredevil, I was co-writing with Andy Diggle. And I would read reviews of the issues, and people would say, oh, what a great line, that's such a Diggle line. Oh, actually, I wrote that. And, and vice versa. People go, oh, th this line was clearly written by Anthony. I'm like, no, Andy wrote that one. It's You can't make those assumptions. It's, uh, you know, you're just leaping to conclusions. You're fumbling around in the dark. And like I say, it's there's no reason that readers should know the difference or be able to tell because you want it to seem like a seamless collaboration. But just be aware that every time you make one of those assumptions, chances are you're wrong. <laughs> Scott, you, you worked both sides of this. So do you find that, that is it an interesting shift for you? Because when you started PvP, it, you know, it was all you. But now PvP is you and Dylan and Table Titans is you and Steve and, and Brian. And, you know, all of your projects now involve other people did, mm -hmm. was it a, was it a big shift like uh do you find that you have um that same feeling that anthony has where somebody comes up and says hey good job you and you're like well I, I, that idea was so-and-so's idea and that idea was like is it weird at all it's not so for me the first time i collaborated was on a book called truth just in the american way um, that I wrote with Aaron Williams, and we had uh, a wonderful artist named Giuseppe Ferrario on that. And it was an image book we did that no one ever read, and it, <laughs> it just makes me sad because I, I loved the book so much. It was, it was our, a good book. It was our love letter to all the awesome TV shows of the 70s and 80s, and uh, I just adore it. But um, I was a real son of a bitch. I had a really hard time letting go of, well, my ideas are the best. I'm the best guy. Why aren't we using my ideas? Or, no, that's a stupid idea. And then, 
you know, my wife pulled me aside and said, you can't override all of everyone else's ideas, right? <laughs> like, I know that you have the relationship with Image, but, like, you've got – they're not going to want to keep working with you. And so I went back and apologized, and I and I – I acquiesced, right? Like, look, I don't like this idea, but let's do it. You know, I didn't put it that way. And then all of a sudden I saw the ideas on paper. I saw them realized, and it dawned on me that these weren't bad ideas. I just didn't see them. They just because, weren't your ideas, yeah. Well, they, yeah, but because they weren't my ideas, I wasn't visualizing them right. right. And I wasn't trusting them. And I wasn't thinking about my collaborators and how they see things. And so... So much rest... of collaboration is about trust, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And so the rest of the book, the rest of the issues went like hotcakes and really made the book shine because all of a sudden I realized, what what other ideas do you have? Because the, well, the big idea was that so... <laughs> It was kind of like uh, Truth, Just the American Way was kind of like our love letter to the greatest American hero. And mm-hmm. so this guy gets superpowers from an alien suit, and the suit talks to him and gives him – like can do things for him. Like if he goes, um, uh, oh, gosh, my car's broken. He goes, fixing car. Now he's running around fixing cars, but he's not moving. The suit's moving him, right? And so Aaron had an idea that Justin would have a thing called the Justin Mobile. <laughs> Because they go to a junkyard and the suit makes them a car. And I'm like, a Justin Mobile? That's like Spider-Man's buggy. We're not fucking doing it. That's dumb. And so Angie's like, what's the stupidest idea Aaron's had? And I'm like, the Justin Mobile. And he, she goes, you're doing it. You're doing the Justin Mobile. And so I went back. I said, let's do the Justin Mobile. And, man, it was the best part of the book. It was the best part of the book. Because when Giuseppe, once Giuseppe got that, a hold of it, and I went, oh, right. It's not that it was a bad idea. It's that, that I couldn't – there was no way for me with my skill set to execute that idea. Mm-hmm. It just never right. occurred to me. So um, all my hang-ups got um, kind of cut loose there. And so where I feel weird now is when someone – my big fear now, especially on Twitter, is that for so long PvP has been just my thing. That when someone goes, oh my god, I really like today's strip, I feel compelled, and Dylan makes fun of me, but I feel compelled to go, that was Dylan's idea. <laughs> Dylan oh, I've heard that. you. I've heard you do that at cons, too, where you say, ah, that was a team effort. You know, you're, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're always I just, kind of pointing that out. Well, because I have a really bad habit. I used to do it to Straub all the time. Mm-hmm. And because... Because Straub, we'd be walking in the mall, and Straub would make a funny joke. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, you should say that. And he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to say it. So then I would walk in and say it. <laughs> and it's like, I felt like I was doing him a favor, like, they got your joke out there. And he's like, that was my joke. Like, <laughs> you stole that from me. Because <laughs> when, the, when the new iPhone came out, they took one of those big 30-inch monitors and turned it on its side and make it a big iPhone. And we walk up to the Apple store. And we walk in, and, and uh, Straub goes, that's a new iPhone? That doesn't look convenient at all. And it killed me. It just destroyed me. And we walked in, and I fucking said it. I just walked up and go, that's a new iPhone? That's not convenient. And I knew he wasn't going to say it. <laughs> and and then, and, but then now he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and, and I'm looking at me like I'm mad at me. I'm like, why did I do that? 
I just fucking stole his joke. Why? Like, I'm super guilty of that, and he made me aware of it. And so, yeah. So now I'm, you overcompensate. I super overcompensate. I, because... I always, I always talk about when people, when I get interviewed for, uh, you know, about my books or about games. I always use we. That's the other thing, you know. I make a point of like, I always talk about the team, and yeah. we decided to do this. We're doing this. We are putting out this book because. Because it is a team. Because it is a, you know, especially in the case of games, it's a huge collaborative effort. Yeah. Even With the games, smallest you never know where game. anything comes from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even the smallest indie game. I mean, apart from literally single, coded, you know, coded in the bedroom, like single uh, developer games. Even a small indie game is probably going to have had five, six, seven people involved in its production at some point, and you right. just don't know what any of them actually contribute. Well, and, and only one person is going to be the face of that, typically, right? Because you need to right. only it, it, just for for clarity of use, you need to only talk to one person. It's the Cliffy B issue, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, which even Cliff started to get sick of by the end of you know by the time <laughs> we got to like Gears Three. Even Cliff was like emphasizing that it was a team and that it wasn't he didn't make these games single-handedly <laughs> you yeah. know and it's very different when when you're sitting in the office and I turn to Chris and I go I'm having a hard time with this line mm-hmm. and then he goes oh here's it's this do this and I go oh yeah thank you or vice versa like he'd be like can I run some ideas off you about Brood Hollow or something and and then if when the comic comes out they go I really like that and you didn't go well that Chris helped me with that punchline he doesn't get pissed but when you walk in and steal his joke at the Apple store, <laughs> the guy's got a reason to be pissed. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the other thing, the other thing is that you forget yourself. I've there are games I've written in you know like some years ago now where I look back and I'm like, did I write that line or was that suggested by somebody else? And I genuinely can't remember. Yeah, I do that all the time too. I think uh, for me, the the big one. Um, with games is when fans get get unruly upset about something or they ask you know they'll ask you why you did such and such with such with such game um i remember we were building a uh four person beat em up so it was like river city ransom or the scott pilgrim game or whatever you know you've got four characters on the screen they're running around beating things up by that was the the year one of production that was what got approved right by the time we put the game out it had gone from that game, which was going to be like a Steam release and maybe PSN and Xbox Live. By the time the game came out, it was a mobile infinite runner with an energy <laughs> an energy bar thing, single player, and you basically couldn't play the game unless you purchased a whole bunch of stuff. It was it, we, we fell right into the, the race to the bottom, right? Yeah. And it's, it was hard to be on... Is that the on, game I think it is? It is, yeah. I'm not going to say what it is. Oh. <laughs> but it was hard to be on the face of that and on the receiving end of so much ire because it was like, and not just from fans, but even the creators of the original property that the game was based on were like, what? What, what, what is this? What just happened? And you're like, you know, you're going, I... There's, there's nothing... At some point, there's nothing you can do. Sometimes, especially with AAA games... I know people get so upset about, you know, like uh, Assassin's Creed came out, it wasn't ready or whatever. It's like you have to say to yourself, like, at what at what point do we stop being mad about this? And then we saw the reverse happen when um, the Order came out, a PSN game that was uh, it had no multiplayer or whatever, right? 
And the guys who made the game were like, well, look, we wanted to do one thing great. So clearly you've got a team of people that fought very hard, probably fought their CEOs and the owners of their property and everything tooth and nail to make a single player, a solid like 10 to 15 hour single player game experience, right? Which we used to just be okay with as, a, as an audience of video games. We used to just go, hey, thumbs up. But then when it came out, it's like, it's too short, there's no multiplayer, and just this list of things. Whereas if they had crammed all that crap in, it would have been a, a weaker game. Yep. And, it, you know, yep. and it, like that's the one that from fans that bugs me is they don't know the process. And I think that spills into comics too sometimes. Is Sometimes there's just a limitation. We're working at Toonon Studios, we're working on a project right now for a, a, a large company mixing some of our products with their products. And it's for mobile, so there's a technical limitation. The comics can only be so wide. They can only, and you know, we they are. have. Oh yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they can only be so wide. They have to read in vertical orientation. They have to do this. They have to do that. Oh, and can you include this one bit of story from this one thing we're working on right now? Oh, and can you have this? And it's like yes to all those questions. Yes, but mm-hmm. when when a reader gets to that comic. They might read it and go, oh, so-and-so is slipping. Or, I, you know, this, it might read funny, this panel, that's weird. Or why did they cram that thing in? And it's like, you have to understand that when you're, when you're making something, there's always going to be limitations to, to you what know, you're doing. You I, know, I, I really am blessed as a creator that because I have to make creative decisions all the time, I think it helps me appreciate art and media more because I sit and look at it from the perspective of a creator where I go, wow, that was a tough creative decision. I wonder what went into that. Mm-hmm. And I did yeah, it a lot. who was involved in it. Well, I did that a lot reading Lord of the Rings. Like, now that I've read the books, I will punch anyone that says the movies are boring because fuck <laughs> you. You try to adapt that. <laughs> like, you have to make a choice. Like, yeah. why is Tyrael in this? She wasn't even in the books. Fuck you, man. <laughs> this thing is uh, like trying to herd cats. It's too much. You've got to do something. Like, yeah. like just, just the fact that he sat down and said, let's make this a movie. And he got to pick, he got to green light. Like, oh yeah. my God. But um, most recently I started reading the Harry Bosch novels, which are detective novels written by this guy, um, Michael McConnelly. And he used to be a uh, crime reporter for a Los Angeles newspaper, and he knows a lot of detectives, and that's why I think I really like the books. But I've been binge reading in these books, and they go um, from third person. They've The first eight books are all written in third person, and then book nine comes, and bam, it's first person. Bosch is telling me what's happening, and it threw me. It fucked yeah. me up for the first chapter. And I was like, what? I don't like this. What's happening? Why is Bosch telling me what's happening? <laughs> and then I thought, wow, I wonder why he did this. Why like, this Yeah. Is, why the creative decision? Huh. Yeah. Was, it, like, was it editorial? Was it publishing? Was it what did Yeah, it? and I'm sitting, here, I'm sitting here talking to Angie, and I'm like, I bet I know why. And she's like, why? And I'm like, well, because at the end of book eight, he's not a cop anymore. He retires. And book nine, he's a P.I., and uh, all the classic PI novels are first person. I wonder if that's yeah. why he did it. Yep. And so I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to tweet. I'm like, hey, I'm binge reading. Why the change? He's like, well, it's his first book as a PI, and I wanted to. <laughs> and I was like, yeah! 
But like, um, imagine if instead I just gone reading the Bosch novels and Book Nine's first person. Fuck this, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I just I think that being a creator has its ups and downs. Brad, you do you do this too? Like, are you watching Castle with your wife and you go, he did it? <laughs> like, cause you <laughs> and she's oh, like. Yeah. What? No. And I'm like, yeah, because that that's not a day player. That's right. an actor. And you don't yeah. pay his rate if he's just coming in to go, oh, yeah, I'm the brother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. So you'll make of course decision. you can search the house. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> you start, make it, you start uh, uh, deconstructing it, and you're like, okay, it, it, they, that actor, there's only one reason for him to be on there. Yeah. Not I'm like, or you'll Or you'll still start to dissect the story, and you're going to be you – know, and like I'll do this with my kids all the time. Like they, they'll, they'll do that classic thing where they make you feel really good about a character. Like uh, just before Cisco – uh, was killed by Reverse Flash, right? He had what a the big f- long... Spoilers! What the hell, dude? <laughs> Christ, it was weeks ago. It was weeks ago. You gotta start <laughs> with that. spoiler on that. Oh, no, <laughs> stop it. Really? Who cares? Get over it. It was that was we. I'm I'm way past the grace period on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but like they, just before they killed him, uh, they they he had this big scene where he was like you really felt warm and fuzzy about him. And I turned to Alex and I said, "Oh, this does not bode well. I'm starting to like this character way too much. Things are not going to go well." And in the next scene, poof, he was gone. He was gone. Uh, my uh, my partner Marcia and I, when we were watching, we watch a, watch a lot of American uh, network cop shows, um, you know, procedurals and stuff. And we have this thing, you know, exactly that where it's like, oh, we recognize that character. He must be input, that actor rather. So yeah, either he did it or he's going to be like the big red herring, falsely accused at the end. He's got to be one of the yes. two. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, we've seen him in other stuff. He must yeah, because be Angie's like, what's a day player? Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Although she's, Angie is super good at it. Well, and, and just, just tangentially, that's one of the payoffs to being uh, like a, a, a consumer of popular culture over, over the years. It's one of, the, one of the benefits of having gray hair is that you see these characters come by and you're like, oh, my God, listen to that voice. Uh, I, I just finished uh, watching uh, all of the seasons of Deep Space Nine, and all of a sudden, uh, Cisco's new love interest walks in, different Cisco, and uh, Captain Cisco. <laughs> different and show, different she Cisco. She opens up her mouth, and I'm like, oh my God, who? And, and then, and then it, it hits you all in a rush. Does this happen to you guys too? Hits you in a rush, and it's like, that's Larry Sanders' uh, receptionist. <laughs> I'm the what? one who I'm the yes. one who does that. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I remember that person playing an obscure background yes, character in another yes. series three years yeah. ago. And it's like yeah. boom, it, it it hit. Or like the the Louise Fletcher. You you never told me about this, Scott. Louise Fletcher was Kai Wynn. You know who Louise Fletcher is? Uh, she was in Brainstorm. I don't know. Oh no, she was medication time, gentlemen. She was the nurse ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm oh, gonna wow. going to holy. She came on the screen, and I just started going. That's oh, medication time, gentlemen. <laughs> I'm gonna go. Co- I'm gonna. Uh, I've never seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, oh stop. no! All right, stop that's recording. a good one. We, you gotta go <laughs> get that one like right now. That is one of that's one of my five movies that I think everybody should watch. The, Wait, the Brett, last one with I us. 
<laughs> the worst one with us is when I spot somebody like Lance Reddick and I'll go, oh, ha, ha, ha. And Marsha will go, who? Because she's never seen The Wire. <laughs> and like, the number of times that I've said, oh, another refugee from The Wire. Don't worry about it. Because she hasn't watched it. <laughs> Lance Reddick is the best, man. And he's on the Amazon version, the Amazon series based on the Bosch novels. Uh, when we, we used oh, to yeah. watch Fringe. We used to watch Fringe. Did you ever watch Fringe? No. Oh. The first couple seasons are great. But I had a theory that the Fringe was the Fantastic Four because he had Reed Richards, he had Johnny Storm, he had Sue Storm, and then I said Lance Reddick is the thing. He's got that voice. He's got that Ben Grimm voice. Mm. He's certainly got the voice for it, yeah, absolutely. He's awesome. Brad, uh, you're last. Do you have a thing that fans that you wish fans knew? Do I have a thing that I wish fans knew? That they have a misconception of about about something or about your work? No, it, it, well, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I do, but it's very petty. I wish they knew that I wrote something other than puns. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I get this whole this whole thing that people think all I do is puns, and sometimes I put so much uh, uh, work, uh, so much heart into into what I write, and then and then when somebody says something about me, it always comes down to puns, and it's you know like, it, oh man, I'm doing so much other than that. You know what it is? It's that classic. You you never get to choose what you're known for. You, the art yeah. the, the yeah. art moves beyond you, and then that's it. Brad, do you have anyone to blame but yourself for that? <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> no, well, no, listen, I, I, what Scott is saying is true. I played into it a lot, and I do an awful lot of words. Is he going to get through this sentence no without a pun? ways about that. <laughs> no, no, I got, I got nothing. Oh, but, I, but I also think that my yeah. stuff runs deeper than that. I know. I'm giving him a hard time. Uh, I'm not really here, guys. I'm asleep. <laughs> I'm dreaming all of this. <laughs> This that is a dream sequence. Right. Uh, well, normally, Anthony, we ask our, our guests five questions at the end, but you have answered our five questions before. Uh, have I? Oh, yes, yeah. I did. Oh, yeah, a Never year ago. City last year, I, that's right. I'm gonna when direct, you were just starting this podcast. Yeah, I'm going to direct <laughs> everyone back to a past episode because uh, find, find in, in early season one, find the Emerald City Comic Con episodes. And it's us just going They're around the great. con floor, going around the con floor, asking creators the five questions. They're really good. So I will not I will not barrage you with them again, but um, but you should tell us. I don't think uh, any of my answers would have changed either. I don't think so either, which is why I don't you know I don't want to ask them of you again. I think you're going to give the exact same answers, but I do want you to tell <laughs> us, uh, you know, as as we wrap it up, we know you have to go. I want you to tell us where to find your work and you know what what video games we should be playing and what comics we should be reading uh, to help uh, support sure. your creative endeavors. Sure. Uh, well, you can find my website is anthonyjohnston.com and my Twitter is at anthonyjohnston and my Tumblr is anthonyjohnston.tumblr. You get the idea. So, <laughs> And I have to, I have to point out, just because I well, think you've on. been mispronouncing it, it's Anthony. There's no H. It's not Anthony. It's Antony. Correct. I was just coming to that. Let ah, me spell it good. because this is the issue. Like, you know, my name is spelt weirdly enough, at least, you know, uh, by as far as Americans are concerned, that I can get my own name on just about every service. So you will find me on Facebook's the same as well, just by using my name. But you need to spell it correctly. And that is A-N-T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. 
So you're no not the, Agent Anthony. You're not Anthony Johnson. You're Anthony John Stun. Exactly. You're not exactly. the you're not the American mixed martial artist in light heavyweight division of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. <laughs> well, I've been meaning to tell you. Been just trying to wait for the right time. <laughs> That's uh, what I'm, Anthony's most upset that fans don't know is he could kill a man <laughs> with my little pinky. Um, <laughs> With regards my work, uh, yeah, play any of the early Dead Space games or play CSR Racing on mobile or play Shadow of Mordor or Zombie U, you know, uh, stuff like that. That, that all helps. My books, um, Wasteland, which is my post-apocalyptic epic, is actually just just wrapped. The last issue just yeah, came out 60, last week. Yeah, 60 issues, um, right? Yep. The 11th and final trade paperback will be out soon, and we will have our fifth and final hardcover out later this year as well. So look for that. Um, the Fuse, which is my sci-fi cops series from Image Comics, is still ongoing. And in fact, issue 12 of that literally comes out on the day we're recording. Um, so again, the second trade paperback of that will be out in June for that one. And keep an eye out for other stuff. I have plenty of other stuff, you know, sort of bubbling under, as we say. Uh, but the main thing is go to my website or follow me on Twitter and everything that I do is announced there. And also, outside of comics and games, I also now do my own podcast called Unjustly Maligned. Oh, yeah. Where I, wow. where I ask people to defend something that they love that everybody else hates. Can we... Can <laughs> we uh, That's a great concept. Well, can we tell, our, can we tell our listeners what, what Scott and I are going to come on and defend at some point? Uh, yeah, why not? Corey is going to come on soon and record an episode talking about the board game Monopoly. I am defending Monopoly. Agreed, yeah, and then Scott <laughs> has co- agreed to come on and talk about the Garfield uh, comic strips. Yeah, which, oh, that's a good idea. Which I'm, I'm defend, really looking forward to. I'm going to defend Garfield. Yeah, um, <laughs> and you can find you can find that at ump.fm, as in unjustly maligned podcast.fm. Um, well, you, you we're record part those, of the incomparable network. You record those pretty far in advance, so we'll we'll post on uh, on the Surviving Creativity page. We'll let everybody know when our episodes are up. Sure, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It could be they're, it could be a bit. Yeah, they're they're not time sensitive at all. So I just record them as and when I have the opportunity with people, and then that you know just put out one a week. But it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun so far. The episode that just went live a couple of days ago from when we were recording was episode. Nine, which was um, Brian Latendry from the Secret Identity podcast, mm-hmm. talking about uh, Megadeth's album Risk, which is a dreadful album. <laughs> <laughs> but he uh, loves it. <laughs> my my favorite is still uh, who did it, who was it that came on and defended Stargate? Oh, that was the very first episode. That was Jason Snell, who owns oh, the man. Network. Yeah, I uh, I love Stargate. I was so happy to hear somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always I'm always alone in that. Uh, well, and uh, just wait until episode 10, which goes live uh, in a few days' time, on the 4th of May, and I will say no more. All right. Oh, on May the 4th? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, is that, how is that indefensible? <laughs> I'm not even going to guess. Oh, I no. I will not postulate. Just, you know, just wait. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good episode. Hey. Well, it's been fantastic. <laughs> What was that? That's amazing. Once, once a show, you're gonna make a crazy noise, and we're gonna loop them all together. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start capturing them. I have the gulp from the other week. I'm gonna get this one too. 
<laughs> make a, a soundboard. Yeah. yeah, just Brad stuff. We'll put up the, we'll put tones to him. We'll make songs out of them. <laughs> 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 Alright. Thank you so much. Oh uh, thank you so much, Anthony, for, for joining us from, from the British Isles. And uh, anytime you want to come back on the show, just let us know. Thank you very much. It was uh, it was my pleasure to be here and uh, have a good time with you all. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Corey Cassoni, and on behalf of myself, Brad Geiger, Scott Kurtz, thank you so much to Anthony Johnston for coming on the show. We really couldn't do this without our fantastic guests. It was great talking to you. We hope to have you back soon. If this is your first time listening to Surviving Creativity, please remember this show is made possible by listeners like you. So if you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com forward slash surviving creativity and please consider becoming a patron. Thank you again and we'll see you next week on Surviving Creativity. <laughs>